You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Welcome to our first episode of Served Up. My name is Bridget Albert. On this episode, Julie and me sit down with social justice educator, diversity trainer, and the lady folks who literally wrote the book on diversity, equity, inclusion, and change, Miss Jessica Pettit, a lady who takes actions to inspire everyone she meets to challenge the norm in order to make our world a better place. So Jess, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, diversity, equity, and change is such a nice thing to talk about, but it's so much harder to do. So one of my questions for you is, you know, what does diversity, equity, and change truly mean? So great question. Uh, I think that the, 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 the answer, and I probably will do this a number of times, but there's the answer and then the answer, right? So the first kind of level of answer is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then you may even see the word belonging get kind of tagged on to the end of it is the you know, 2020, 2019 version of what was previously referred to as diversity work, what was previously referred to as social justice work, what was previously referred to as celebration or awareness or tolerance, like all of these words roughly mean, wow, we should probably be doing something. Right, like, right, and the we is usually dominant, privileged, identityed, usually stemming from some kind of academic access to the ability to change the words people use, um, which also usually means educated, upper class, white, US based kind of lens. So that's kind of first piece, right? So then the words keep changing because the problem for lack of better words, keeps getting avoided and we focus on something that seems a little bit more manageable because mostly privileged identity folks are not prepared to be as uncomfortable as you would need to to completely dismantle the system that we're redecorating. So with that, the idea of diversity is difference. Uh, The idea of equity is around opportunity. The idea of inclusion or belonging is that people actually feel invited, but also equally valued and utilized once invited to the opportunity, even though they're very different than everyone else. Like that's kind of how the words stack. Um, The answer that I don't ever get to normally give, which is kind of round two, is how things are going is not working for all, and we need a completely new way of doing things. And uh, what I like about the transition of these words to at least contain these three or four words is that you're actually addressing systems of oppression, privilege and power 
from all different angles and applications. So maybe I'm kind of, I don't know if people are listening to this, but you can't see my hands, but we're kind of coming in from all angles, which yay, we could learn something from the military here, is a way of defeating an enemy versus coming at an enemy from one side, the enemy just moves and then we're kind of chasing it around. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of progress in really delineating what the issues could be and how to make a big shift in that. It's a very long answer, but that's the answer. But that's a great answer to a very big question. So thank you so much for that. Um, can you tell us about your message and how your book, which I love, um, Good Enough Now came to be? <laughs> sure. Uh, I kept getting fired and burnout really is the, the intersection of, well, I guess I'll write a book. Uh, Probably 10 years into my career of doing diversity education, um, that stemming from uh, what I would say is my one of my subordinated or marginalized identities, um, I identify as a queer person. And so I found myself doing a lot of like LGBT safe zone trainings with primarily straight people, which is a dominant identity or privileged identity in case people don't know how I'm using these words. So then like the gay person is teaching the straight person how not to be a jerk, right? So that that's the power dynamic in the training. And what I realized was is the straight people would kind of like take notes like, oh, oh, never use that word again. Okay, I'll delete this word. I'm done, right? Like, well, I have a sticker now. And um, I didn't like the done dynamic. Um, also in the audiences usually were other gay people who were there mixed in with the audience of learning how not to be a jerk, not to learn how to not be a jerk, but to like really critique the people who were doing the training or just to find other queer places because they didn't have any other space, which is another kind of stir in the power dynamic of the audiences. So the reason why that's so relevant is that I realized that the other gay people or queer people in the audience and the straight people who were in the audiences really actually did have something in common. And that was that they are a jerk. I am also a jerk. What? In some way or manner, we just had to like find the common denom um, denominator, which would be our dominant or privileged identities. So I, the burnout I was experiencing was that I hadn't realized that yet. And I still thought that like, deleting words and or adding vocabulary would somehow like upgrade your software so then you would you would no longer offend anybody i was still kind of operating in that space until i realized this connection and that is that i'm not i'm not a, a gps system or an app on my phone that can get updated automatically overnight while not in use and that i have to actively take responsibility from my dominant places so then i started kind of listening what why is that and why don't we just do that because if if we do work from our dominant and privileged identities it doesn't cost anything it's not even hard like it's kind of hobby level work instead of like thriving and trying to limb level work so it's less risky so why don't we just automatically do this so I started paying attention and started mapping out the excuses and that's where good enough now came from is that mostly people are, including myself, 
from as soon as I take away subordinated and marginalized pain and suffering, things are pretty nice, right? Like if you take take away pain and suffering and you're like, oh, well, I can read all the street signs because they're in the language that I can read. Didn't even realize that's not hard, right? Like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So start kind of like building a tumbleweed of all the ease and access that you have from a privileged and dominant place. Then you ask yourself, why don't you do work from there? And largely I found is people uh, are perfectionists. People feel like they have to somehow prepare in order to be uncomfortable, which makes no sense. And um, they don't know anything about themselves. They don't know how they turned out. It's so it's, it's kind of a reformatting the hard drive or throwing the baby out with the bathwater, whatever idiom you want to use. And that seems scarcity based, right? Like I have to give up my piece of pie to give somebody else pie. There's so many idioms here. And at the root of all of them is uh, I have not done my own homework to take responsibility for how I turned out this way. Um, and then once I realized that I was kind of compelled to write. And now here we are. And now here we are. I'm so glad that you are here <laughs> with us. <laughs> I promise I will eventually yes. answer a question briefly. No, we don't want you to enter it, answer it briefly. No. Um, you know, something that you just said about kind of, you know, you need to identify with yourself. You need to really kind of trust yourself, right? So that you can grow. Is this what I'm getting, you know, through diversity? But I think that a lot of us hold this fear that we're going to do something wrong. We're going to say the wrong thing in these conversations and then it holds us back and then we never say a darn thing. And so how do we get past that? How do we get past that internal fear of like, I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to make this worse. It's going to become a power keg, right? It's a hundred percent the most popular question I get asked a hundred percent. And the truth is, is your choice of doing nothing out of fear of doing something wrong is also offensive and having a negative impact. And so like, once you realize like, okay, I just can't interact with humans. I'm a terrible, horrible person should never do this terrible. And you're going to go live in a cave. Your aunt Mildred is going to be very upset that you missed her birthday party, right? Like there is no way out of being offensive. And so what that actually means is, is you just lean in to being offensive, which for some you're like, whoa, you're going to be great at this because you super offend everyone. But what I mean is, is that we are working towards the wrong goal. If you're working towards never being offensive, so then you opt out. Now you're just offensive in a different way. So you have to, that's the behavior you need to change. And so what, what you need to do, it sounds super easy. And it's, I'm not saying at all that I don't still get like agita and heartburn and like a pucker and nervous and sweaty sometimes. But what I'm going to do is like, okay, I am about to engage. Now I'm conscious that I'm about to engage, right? I'm about to engage. And there is a chance that I'm going to offend this person. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to make a mistake. There is even bigger chance that that's going to occur. And I'm never going to know about it. I'm never going to notice. They're not going to tell me about it. Everyone around me might notice. And still nobody's going to slip me a little post-it note that reminds me that I'm a jerk. And I engage anyway. And by doing that, if you are gifted with the feedback, you were kind of prepared for it. And if you're not gifted with the feedback that you've been offensive, you're still responsible for the possibility. So your like whole way of being is less defensive because you're just being instead of preparing to be. 
I think that's one of the hardest lessons, right? Just to put yourself in and prepare to just be. I think that's a really tough thing for a lot of us to do. I mean, myself included, and I consider myself to be pretty darn woke. Sometimes it's still really hard to do for sure. So what do we do, Jess, when the conversations become combative? You know, what do we do when you have that stinker that you're talking to? And I think a lot of us are trying to change minds right now, right? And what do we do when it becomes explosive? So, so, and I saw Julie, your finger was up as well. So I want to acknowledge that. So the, the, if I'm going to like diagram your sentence for a second, Bridget. So the question that I heard is what do we do when a conversation becomes combative? It already is. You just maybe became aware of it, right? So every conversation, every, every conversation has the possibility of being combative, combative and you will never know about it. So then all you're really distinguishing are between are the ones that you do know about and the ones you don't know about that may or may not be combative. So then entering into something like, oh, that went great. You could be wildly wrong. So even if, so then the knee-jerk reaction is, well, I just will never communicate again. Well, that is also a sign of combativeness, right? Is now you're not engaging. You're passive aggressively unfollowing. Okay, that is also a form of combative response because you're only passive aggressively unfollowing certain people, right? So opting out or opting in, you still won't know. So then at the root of the question is basically how do we fix them so that it doesn't become combative, but that's coming from a place of they're the reason that it's combative because I'm fine, right? I'm, I mean, my full disclosure, my brother and his wife uh, are deep, deep, deep QAnon supporter believer things. Deep, deep, like every text results in like nine hours of YouTube videos about how Hillary Clinton is in prison. Oh, okay, good to know what is happening, right? Like, (laughs) how do I engage with someone who is currently functioning with a very different set of facts? I'm trying to figure out the best way of saying what I really want to say because I also am trying to communicate without offending you or your listeners. And the reality is, is that they, my brother is probably also trying to figure out how to connect with me with a very different set of facts. I'm sure he would use different words to describe that. So then if we like pretend that we are somewhat respectful of the other person's set of facts, we still could actually have a conversation about like, how are the dogs, right? Like we could do that. And if I can acknowledge that he's pretending as much as I'm pretending that there's not this huge conversation that we wish we could be having. And I'm pretending and he's pretending that there's like a thousand topics we hope don't come up. Well, at least that's actually an authentic conversation, even though it's about like what's off limits. Well, now we're entering in a way that's a little bit better. I can't do anything about him. Trust, I have tried. I actually do these kind of things professionally and teach people how to have awkward conversations much better. I wrote a whole book about it. And insert my brother, no idea. Clueless, I am assuming I just talked to you after the election. Like, I don't know, I don't even know what, I don't know what to do, right? So there is no way to make them 
do anything different. And that is a common conclusion from every social movement that has ever existed in humankind. You cannot make them do anything. What the flip or the inversion, what came from my burnout is that I barely pay attention to making myself do stuff. Barely. So maybe I should start there. Okay. But that's the yucky hard work you don't want to do because it's much easier just to blame my brother on being wrong, very wrong. It is so much easier just going to blame your brother for everything that's wrong. Yeah, for sure. And for the record, he is wrong. I, I think still my, still my brother, I'm still going to have to figure out how to talk to him. And, and I think that's a great question and answer. I think a lot of us are going through the same thing within our families, within people that we love, where one thinks we're right and one thinks that we're wrong. And the question that I have for you, I think that it's it's really important that we address these things and be able to see from other people's perspectives. So staying with current events, the recent news is that some people think and say that diversity and inclusion training is un-American and sows divisiveness. And for those people that might think like that, what, what is your answer to that? So <laughs> what's so fascinating about, quote, keeping to current events is that in this particular administration, like, I don't know exactly how out of date I'm going to be because it's been like five minutes since I checked in with the news. Um, so this particular element of basically having diversity training banned from government because taxpayer dollars are being used to teach this unpatriotic, un-American thing. First off, so many thoughts that are probably not appropriate for this podcast. So let's just put those aside, but I've acknowledged them. So I'm okay. Okay. Then number two is um, I, uh, I really believe probably one of the most shocking things about the work that I do is that I am a constitutionalist. I'm a capitalist and I believe in democracy, which is very different than the Democratic Party, which I actually am super critical of and happy to have a conversation if need be. Um, but I have lived in other forms of government, which is not a commonality of a lot of people who critique democracy. And being a constitutionalist capitalist who believes very strongly in democracy, um, it is fascinating to me how the equivalent of calling names or dog whistling, or virtue signaling, which I actually think are the same thing, it just depends on which team you're in, um, is just creating teams. It's just creating polarization. So the, the name calling is just as much on the left as it is on the right, and it's really doing a lot of harm. And so I, I, I would highlight that that's a problem, right? So um, I think that at the root of diversity training being called unpatriotic is people who have different viewpoints or beliefs don't feel heard. And that's actually very similar when, you know, switch a president and there's another group of people who felt very silenced and very unheard. Switch a president, there's a group of people who feel very silenced and unheard. Switch a president, like, I mean, we can keep doing this. That part is very similar. Um, we forget about that. 
uh, largely because of the the age of the people who are currently paying attention roughly stays the same, but the human beings who are that age are moving through time. Does that make sense? So uh, for people who grew up under Obama, as far as paying attention to politics, um, it's really hard to understand people being critical of Obama, right? And the choices that he made. And so then understanding like, why aren't people being critical of Trump when they were not critical of Obama is not a shared skill set until we get like three presidents in, you don't realize like, oh, it's all a big machine game thing. So then I have to like, I'm obsessed with politics. So I have to consciously think. So I, my very first time I was ever legally allowed to vote was Clinton's presidency, Bill, not Hillary. Um, I guess you have to clarify now. Uh, so not being critical of Bill Clinton, because that was the first person I like cited for, right? I even went to college in Arkansas. So like I was very Clinton country. So then I got to be very critical of George W. Bush and was studying also being critical of every president that came up in history. As a history student, you're critical of all of them. None of them were like amazing, right? So <laughs> So then George W. Bush is the first one I ever got to be critical of. So then when Obama became president, I then had the skills of being critical and the skills of being like, my guy won and had to like mush them together. Does that, but that's my responsibility. So it goes back to the previous question of what do you do? What's happening, right? So the, the tangible answer to your question is a lot of executive orders have come up and they are not actually implemented by many folks. And most government spending has been furloughed or frozen since COVID anyway. So like it's a very timely thing to virtue signal to conservative people who don't want this liberal agenda, I'm using air quotes, shoved down people's throats, but only in the realm of government employees, which wouldn't impact very many folks. Um, so it is virtue signaling to the conservative folks, right? It's also dog whistling to the very radical conservative folks who just see it as like a nice little chipping away of dismantling democracy inside of the words of being patriotic and democratic. Still not a short answer. There are no short answers to these questions that we have for you, Jess. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Orange. What, is your, what is your favorite color, Jess? Orange, yeah. preferably. There you Not go. quite the glow in the dark kind. So like a little more uh, fall version than construction worker version. There you go. Yeah, that's short. Very good. Well, you know, um, paying pretty close, you know, just nice, really close attention to that last answer because um, it's such a important topic, you know, DNI. Um, it's definitely some it's definitely in the spotlight right now with so many major companies and here in the beverage industry as well. And I know that you've done a lot of work with the United States Bartenders Guild. And I know early on in your career, you were a bartender yourself for a short time. Uh, so how do we create as a beverage industry that cultural shift after everything we just said, after everything you just said, you know, how do we really create a cultural shift and create a space that is inclusive? So a couple of things. First is, as I have worked with the USBG, I have very much understood more about who are the membership 
or who are the possible membership within the guild. And so my like paltry summer as a bartender at a bar that was in a state that only served mini bottles, um, I don't think is actually the best experience reference point. Um, and I have learned that being a manager, front of the house manager, as well as being a server in hospitality is actually gave me much more of a window into the profession of hospitality than the word in the title. So I feel that that's an important thing. I am also definitely not a craft paying attention person to the science and chemistry. Um, I basically learned how to make like a lemon drop six ways in five seconds. I don't know that that's really the same skill set, but the, the environment that comes from hospitality, which I think is really what the guild is about and what this podcast is addressing. So if, if I kind of redefine my own experience within that, it goes back to a past question is that, okay, well now how do we make this big culture shift? Well, we can't make anybody else do anything else. So as an association, you could make a stance on something, right? So if we go back to the previous question about diversity trainings being unpatriotic, we, as a culture of an association, but I would say as a culture of beings, possibly starting with party of one, your own individual worldview and culture, we have to be able to decide what is a political view, which means like if you had more information, you could change it. And what is a deeply held value or belief, which you would still question. This is a very important distinction. You need to question what you value and you need to question what you believe. And if you come back to it, like give it this rigorous questioning process and you come back to it, you now know why that's a value. You now know why you believe that. That's very different than like a political viewpoint, right? But a value and a belief is core to who you are as a person. And I would even challenge, because I do so much consulting work with associations, that because of capitalism, we have given associations, organizations, and companies, corporations, human characteristics. And so uh, a political viewpoint is basically branding and marketing. But the values, the mission, the vision of what is the point of this organization that ties everything together needs to be radically questioned and constantly challenged and edited or reaffirmed. And that's where like strategic planning comes in with associations, advisory groups, uh, board services, almost always volunteers, even on a chapter level or a national level the rigorous questioning of the beliefs of the association is the heartbeat of the association. So if that's the case to your actual question, how do we make diversity stuff happen better inside these things, is these kind of conversations that are like the political ideation, the language of the moment versus the stable, constantly questioned values and beliefs they, they don't become political statements, they become the mission. So with associations start looking at like Black Lives Matter statements, for example, a lot of associations wanted to have a statement because everybody else had a statement. Okay, but that's this side conversation about like, oh, I guess we've got to have one of those things. But if it was core to the values and mission and possibly leading to a conversation of the, is this something that we value as an association versus an accessory item that is timely, 
then having a Black Lives Matter statement could still happen, but it wouldn't look like a one-off or it wouldn't be a carbon copy of some other company or something like that, right? Like this is actually who we are. So back to the USBG, when we start talking about hospitality, the idea of welcoming people and allowing and creating and fostering a space for people to feel welcome is at the heart of hospitality. So even though Black Lives Matter has been politicized, the global pandemic of racism has been politicized, it is completely in line with the USBG's practices to have a conversation about what it means to be inclusive of business owners, uh, members, clientele, guests, et cetera, that identify as black and or people of color without coming just from a white lens. But that still deserves rigorous questioning and it can still be better. That is doing the party of one work versus changing the background on a website. Checking a box, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just checking I, a box. I love that analogy. And I think that what we've seen and what we do see is that being in the beverage industry and the hospitality industry, when you look at it, it, it is a reflection of our community and it is actually very diverse, probably more diverse than most industries. And what we do see as well is that as further you get up in the leadership organization, then it stops becoming so diverse, whether you're in a restaurant or a bar, corporation, distributor. And I think that's something that we're all trying to tackle. So my question for you is, well, I, I do want to add context is at Southern Glazers, our, the owner of our company put out a very strong statement about racial justice, equality, and it was really great to see, right? So that's step one, is what is the message? What is the direction? And as an organization, we've actually been following up internally on making sure that we're putting things into action based on what that messaging is so we can really change for the better. One of the things that we're doing is an internal crowdsource and getting ideas from the front line of different ways and ideas that they would like to see to really put into action what we're putting out there. And one of the categories, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, is leadership accountability. And as I go through the idea, idea distillery, I actually submitted an idea and, and so did Bridget. I noticed that there weren't a lot of ideas submitted for leadership accountability. And I think that's a really difficult thing to put together. So I would love to ask you, what are your thoughts? How do you think leadership accountability should be put into place for so diversity? It's, yeah, it's such a trick, right? So, <laughs> so much of this work, again, I'm laughing at myself because I know how long this answer is about to be. Um, I'm laughing at myself. It's so much well-intentioned whiteness comes out of these like rubber stamp words that look so good like instagram would eat it up right like mm, pinterest make it a wreath yes we'll put it on our doors it's very exciting like so good right but the the truth of the matter is that having them the we haven't dismantled white supremacy to the fact that by having this wreath on a door we are now going to co-opt the wreath on the door to be an alibi so that no one else has to do anything. So 
leadership accountability is a, an amazing, yes, do that. Okay, how do we do that? When do we do that? Who does that? Mm, yeah, I don't know, but it looks amazing. Can we put it on little throw pillows, perhaps some t-shirts, right? So then what ends up happening, and, and uh, George Floyd is an excellent, ex COVID and George Floyd are excellent examples of this. And somebody listening to this is gonna be like, what is she doing? I promise I'm making sense to me. So as a diversity consultant, I worked, I had 31 virtual consulting clients at the beginning of COVID, March 5th, March 6th, I lost almost everything, but March 6th, 5th, rolling in consulting clients. And one of the things I was doing with all of them was DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategic planning, right? So similar to one of the other questions that came up already was, we're going to increase diversity. Fantastic. What is it currently? Uh, we don't know. Okay, great. What are you going to do to increase it? Mm, don't really know. Okay, great. By when? Mm, don't know. Oh, okay. What resources and budget are you going to put towards this thing in your strategic plan that says to increase diversity? What, what resources and budget are you going to do? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Poof, insert a committee, right? We put everything into a committee. So now we have a diversity and equity inclusion committee. That's not even on the strategic plan. It's extra bonus, right? So then it dies in committee forever because the committee itself is an alibi for look at how we're doing this work. Okay, COVID happens. In one week's time, if not under, every single organization in the world figured out how to do something they had never imagined seven days earlier. No organization can tell me that they're going to need a committee and a year to generate a best practices report now as to how to hold leadership accountable. Because when it comes to it, you can actually make these decisions real fast. Now, it's because we had to devalue profits. Stakeholders actually was a broader definition than just shareholders. And in this particular case, the shareholders and the stakeholders were also making the same decisions in under a week time. So boom, all of a sudden, this is what we gotta do. So then now we have no idea how long this is what we're doing is going to work. We are still operating without actual, tangible, factual knowns. We have no idea what's happening. So we furlough people, we fire people, we freeze budgets, we do all this. Remember all those strategic plans where this is important, poof, gone. George Floyd's murdered. All of a sudden these organizations are like, oh, we just fired everyone and got rid of all those budgets because we don't actually focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion or the alibi related to doing our DEI work unless it is an extra hobby because we haven't actually dismantled anything to begin with. So when we start talking about leadership accountability, one, obviously a great idea because the leaders of the organization have access to the resources and the time and the structures and the bylaws and how to actually like hit a gavel and make stuff happen, right? Like, yeah, y'all should be doing something. Fantastic. But then that makes all of the members or all of the employees now have an alibi because, well, leadership's supposed to do it. I, I don't know how to do it. I mean, they're not doing it. I don't know. It's all them fault. So then it's this catch-22. The leadership, if they were to do something, to, if, it's too, if it's perceived as too top-down, then 
nobody's going to want to do it because it didn't come from the grassroots, but coming from the grassroots in like an idea generator kind of thing. What a great way to glean all the ideas. Oh, this is great. Now you're telling the leadership. So then the leadership's like, oh, well, the small ones have spoken. We are now being asked to do this, but no one knows how to do it. But the we're not dismantling enough to no longer have an alibi for look at us trying to do the thing, right? The reason why leadership or supervision or management, the reason why it loses specifically racial diversity and specifically black diversity, racial diversity, is because of what is asked of those people to get into that position and what is asked of people once they are in that position. And those resources, those time, that ability to be perceived as a leader is less and less and less and less specifically for black communities. Now there are other communities of color that also probably are dramatically underrepresented in any organization we name, but there's slightly different levels of perception around what are leadership skills or not based on different racial identities that specifically black men and women don't experience in as other racial identities do that are more accepted to white folks, whether white folks know it or not. That's just a true statement. I guarantee you that when this plays wherever it is, that's where someone's gonna be like, what the hell is she talking about? Blah, blah. Okay, I'm not talking about an individual basis. I'm talking about it as a group, right? So until that is dismantled, everything will actually register like a t-shirt until it's, and so then what ends up happening is you get like the Herman Keynes, where you're like Ghostbuster style. We got one. We have one black man who's willing to speak to us. Oh, fantastic. So then they're completely written off by other people who are members of the black community or white members who are like, where did they find this one person? Right? Like, so then there's a reverse tokenization that's happening that doesn't actually move anything. And then that's why at the beginning, when I said we're kind of circling around the prop, it's not just diverse images, but it's equitable opportunity being invited and honored and welcomed into the opportunity and then viewed like you belong there, not that you are an accessory. That's what would have to get dismantled. There is tons of diversity at the top of every organization. It's just usually not racial diversity, but that's what we think about because we don't talk about anything else, or we only talk about the other things and dismiss the lack of racial diversity where we need to really do both. That's a great Drop answer. the mic. Yeah, drop the mic. We're done. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I guess in the le- one thing I would say, just because I think it's important and I don't want to feed anybody else thinking it's somebody else's job, But the truth of leadership accountability is that every single one of us is leading a group of people, whether we know it or not, or whether it comes with a business card or a job title or a role. So our own accountability is what we have to be doing, but it doesn't come with like the blue ribbon and the trophy. And it's not competitive enough because we don't have other competitors when in reality, the biggest competitor is our will to not want to be different. That's that makes, leadership accountability. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Um, so what do we do from here, Jess? What do we do? Do you see 
you know, companies making true change? Do you see companies just checking that box, you know? Uh, yes. I mean, what do we do? I just rediscovered Butterfingers, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's got to be related to an answer, right? I, I don't know where Butterfingers have been in my life, but oh my gosh. Um, it is a it is a fascinating question for to ask me in this exact moment because I still don't know the answer, which is very disappointing. Um, but part of COVID in its unemployment, um, I make just enough money to not qualify for unemployment. Uh, I enrolled in an MBA program at the local university here. So that's been all kinds of fascinating, right? And if we look at all the articles I'm already reading, all the chapters, all of the TED Talks about the corporate responsibility, the business response, business is the solution. If we look at sustainability and climate change and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, how's that worked out? You know, like there's a huge initiative behind corporate social responsibility. There's conferences, there's tons of money. There's a some couple in Washington, the Gates. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I was a ceramics major, so this is all new to me. But uh, they have dumped billions of dollars. So it's not lack of money. It's not lack of resources. It doesn't even seem lack of like the political beliefs because it's like the do-gooder thing, right? Like I buy shoes or glasses or food or clothing from certain companies because they're a good company. And then I have a list of bad companies there terrible right not to mention a band from my childhood but if if that's all true why is climate change not getting better right like why is stuff still terrible well largely because i have not adjusted my consumerism the amount of waste that i produce like shooting towards sustainability makes no sense if this system is not sustainable right like we don't want it to get worse than this. Well, this is a dumpster fire. I live in Northern California. So literally there I'm living in a dumpster fire right now. And I don't think we should be shooting to stay at this level. But in order to change this level, I'm going to have to realize that I don't get to eat peaches in January because peaches shouldn't happen in January. Right? Like I should be like the magic of a peach should occur when peaches magically occur. But that is a dismantling a system of my consumerism. Now I bring this up because dismantling your system of consumerism, oh, let's get back to racism, can we? Because that's <laughs> way better. Um, but ultimately that's the answer, right? Is that why is it that we think that it's resources or someone else? or something else, or something, something, when really we, we have the brain power of understanding, we have to do things wildly different. And in order to do that, you have to admit you are part of the problem. I am part of the problem. Like, people are tired. Oh, I'm still, there's so much stuff still about racism. It's just too much. Like, what a hobby that you get to, like, clock out of Black Lives Matter because you wore that shirt so much that the ink kind of is ugly now, so you don't want to wear it. You'll just save it for a t-shirt quilt for later, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that's called white privilege, and you don't even always have to be white in order to benefit from that privilege. There are other people who are actually seeking to live. They don't have the luxury of getting to liberty and freedom. 
Look at me quoting the Constitution. Well done. Well done. Constitution and everything on today's show. My goodness. Um, By a pinko commie liberal. Who would have thought? (laughs) you know, we have a whole nother generation that is coming up below us, you know, the really young, um, those of us that are moms and, um, you know, even though that this is really focused on the beverage community, we do have a responsibility for the next generation when we talk about equality, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, all of this, right? Um, what are some words of wisdom that you give to the next generation that hasn't screwed anything up yet? <laughs> well, that we know of, just wait. Um, it's actually, uh, this came up in an earlier conversation I had today, even in that there was something on Facebook that was somebody posted something and like one of the comments is like, I would like to assume positive intent. And then someone just mentioned, you know, like if marginalized or subordinated folks don't get the assumption of positive intent, like maybe we should just stop giving positive intent. And what what it made me think of was cancel culture, right? Is that, so we have two options, right? Of like, no one ever gets the benefit of the doubt or positive intention anymore. And we just cancel them automatically. That seems bad for connections and relationships. It also seems inconsistent, but I would challenge if you want to do cancel culture, can you at least be responsible for the patterns of what you're quick to cancel and what you're totally fine with dealing with? Because your best friend does things that are disastrously hurtful and you kind of look past it because you're friends with them. So this isn't a consistent thing. If cancel culture shifted to consequence culture, I think that that might be something better. And then again, it's still deeply rooted in responsibility. And it's important when talking about generations, right, is that we're all different ages. Like, I don't know how old any of y'all are, actually. So I just turned 46 this week. Woot, woot. Right? Happy so birthday. I'm a, thank you. Thank you very much. I am a classic Gen Xer triple Virgo, actually. So people who are younger than me, it's important to mention, could be middle managers of an organization and would be considered a different generation, right? So then those are the millennials. And then if you go down another one, you get the Gen Zs. Gen Zs are like legally allowed to vote, (laughs) right? So then I don't know how old your children are, but I just think it's important to mention that we forget kind of, we go to these extremes, right? Is that there's people in between. So if you're talking about like small children, like possibly ones you have to homeschool or even children who are not even old enough to go to school yet, because we just, the kidless people, we just assume all of you are day drinking, basically. I've never been so happy to not have children in my entire life, ever. Thank you, COVID. So the <laughs> small kids, I am actually very hopeful that we are generating, or y'all, parent people, are actually raising the soon-to-be next Gen Xers, who are like independent, latchkey kids who live off of food that started as a powder because there's gonna have to figure it out there's gonna have to figure it out like I don't know what's going on right like I turned out okay I mean I'm grossly mistrustful and I have amazing music taste so I have hope that there's all these independent agency driven self-starting humans being raised right now that are going to have to figure out how to live their life. And thank goodness, because these 
do-gooder Gen Zers, if we want to uh, stereotype them, are very parallel also to the boomers, right? Who like linoleumed, beautiful hardwood floors because it was easier. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with you, right? So if, if the generations skip a few before they show up again, the, the future are folks like my generation in theory that um, are distrustful and do question things and don't assume that like I'm going to get some kind of trophy or some kind of unicorn is going to show up at my door and tell me everything's wonderful. Um, but we're also like, if, if we're generalizing, obviously, like scrappy and resourceful and independent and entrepreneurial and, you know, dust yourself off and figure it out. Um, I, I also don't even know if the planet's going to be here then. So <laughs> we'll see. That seems like a good we'll skill see. set pairing. We'll see. I'm going to put all that that you just said on a shirt. I'm also Generation X and um, yeah, for sure. And I remember, you know, making Tang and I was a latchkey kid as well, you know, so having to um, have that delicious Tang and make my own PB&J when I came home from school was just what you had to do. And if I can't go, I don't, again, I don't know how old you are. I did this without a microwave. Oh yeah. There was no easy Mac, right? That's what the stove is for. It's an open flame. For sure. I had a stool. You figured it out. And you are allowed to use it. You are allowed to use the stove. Yep. Wear a helmet right now. It's important (laughs) to mention statistically, I'm alive. Some people Mm -hmm. did not make it, but that's something we don't have to talk about. You can put that in a footnote (laughs) <laughs> we'll put that in the footnote. That's fine. But I am putting everything that you just said on a t-shirt because I think that it's absolutely amazing and very truthful. But I, I, you know, I do think that it is on us to make sure that the next generation does better than we do. Right. And I love what you said about like the little ones that are growing up. And, and I do think that they are so much better than those before. You know, I see it. I hear it. I, I have a daughter. She's going to be 17. And even with her, you know, teenagers are so bad, supposedly. She's not, she's freaking awesome. You know, her friends come over here and they, they don't all look like her, you know? And um, I just have great hope, great hope for the next generation. I think that really lines up with what you said. When we talk about leadership accountability, it's not this group that we're putting into a category called leaders. It's really about the individual, right? So each one of us, regardless of what level you are within the organization, has the responsibility to truly live up to the values of diversity and equity. And I think that goes the same for parents within the industry, outside of the industry, because if we don't change our mindset and be better and really live by these values, we're not gonna be able to make that difference for the next generation, the next generation to come. My son is six years old and we have very open dialogue and we talk about, and we have a lot of tough conversations and I don't necessarily, and it's really sad for me when I hear from him, some of the things that his friends that are just little kids say, right? And that all comes from what they hear at home. So, you know, I think it's really important that we can't just assume because they're a new fresh generation and they're coming in at a different time that it's gonna be better because if we don't change in our current generation and and influence them and lead them, it'll just continue. 
generation after generation. Yeah, uh, one of the principles I talk about in my book that is helpful to me, and again, I am not a parent, so perhaps this will be helpful, is that your life taught you how to be this way. And even if we were to take somebody that I vehemently disagree with that just recently banned the ability of diversity trainings being existing in the government, I'll let you fill in the blanks who I might be talking about. Like their life taught them that this is how to show up. I don't have to agree with it, right? I'm not, I'm not brainwashing myself or anybody else. But the space of empathy that it takes for me for, to hold for one millionth of a second that this person's life taught them that this is what to do, right? That like, if, you know, the world is love. Okay, great. So the world is love. So at the heart of doing something that I think is spiteful and evil and helpful and narcissistic, again, just speaking hypothetically, if the, those decisions are coming from the lessons their life has taught them and that this is how you protect what matters most, right? Like, if that's at the root, then I can also have a conversation and maybe I'm actually like prepping for my Saturday call with my brother, but our lives taught us to be this way. And a lot of that life was shared. So then there's a share, there's a potential of a shared set of values, but what we do with those values could look very, very different. You know, that I think ultimately the a conversation needs to take place around who dictates to us individually what living things are valued in a different way? So what, what do I mean by living? What do I mean by things? Like we don't collectively respect air or water or the earth or plants. We don't respectively respect all animals. Like some animals, yep, some animals, no, right? Uh, Creatures that are living in the oceans or the rivers, we don't pay, like they, each these things, we value the livingness of that thing in a very different way. If I stopped there, no matter what people's politics are, and again, I'm pointing to this stuff that doesn't actually matter, but whatever people's politics are, we could have kind of a raucous conversation, if not a heated argument about what it is that we own, what it means to have labor, what it means to like secure this for the future. But if we just have the conversation about how do we value living things, we could do this. And when we flip it to humans, all of the sudden from fetus to elderly has a different value. And it is the same conversation and we're not actually having either of them um, but that would be where I, I would like to think that we could engage with people who are younger than us, not to teach them, but because they have things to teach us. And we, we as older people, have shifted away from the ability of understanding why we value living things differently. And we don't listen to younger people because that's another way of devaluating, devaluing another living thing is they're not old enough to have an opinion. I, I feel like that's a lie. I, I agree with you 110%. I know that I've learned so much um, from people that are half my age, you know, um, through their behaviors and through just a lot of um, empathy that they have and kindness that they show. 
um, things that are sometimes lost even on our generation, you know, uh, that can be lost. There's also a great book if people are interested, and I don't have it with me because it is literally by my bed, but it is called White Kids. And um, I have not read the book yet. I learned about it on PBS NewsHour because I'm a dork and I watch PBS NewsHour. But what I liked about the premise of the book, and regardless of your own racial identity or the racial identity of your children, is I think being able to understand the responsibility of what it means to be a white kid and or raising kids with white kids or raising white kids is connected to that future, but it's so deeply steeped in the parents' own unlived story or unrecognized story. So like, Bridget, when you said that your child can come home and people don't look like her, Mm -hmm. right? Like a lot of that is also the type of neighborhood that you live in, the type of schools that you go to, where you can associate. COVID doesn't allow you to associate, but it does at the same time because now it's opened up boundaries that it didn't exist before. So now we're getting into like the housing system and dismantling segregation and da 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 right? All of that is true. I lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. I went to predominantly white schools for high school, for college. My major in my master's program in grad school, though the University of South Carolina is a very diverse school in Columbia, South Carolina, and I live downtown, I was surrounded by almost all white people the vast majority of my life has been spent surrounded by white people. Why is that? And that's that's a good question to ask for yourself and your own accountability, right? Well, where did I get an apartment where I felt safe? Why do I feel safe there? Because it reminds me of other places I've lived. Or it doesn't remind me of places I have been where I didn't feel safe. Well, what are those characteristics? How did I write those definitions? So then now we're back, we're over here in like practices and policies and politics, but what are my actual values? And ultimately, unchecked values become just something that's comfortable and self-serving. So don't do that anymore. Oh, okay, that's pretty easy. We'll just knock that off, right? Like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's, it's a good enough place to start, you know? So now we're back to the book, right? Is do the best you can with what you got some of the time. It's better than nothing, never. You're right. It is better than nothing, never. I do have um, one more question for you. You know, as we're we're covering so much today in this show, you know, how how do we start these hard conversations? How do we start these hard conversations with our colleagues, especially um, and our friends and our family? Because I know we talked about, you know, there is that fear of just saying the wrong thing, but then, and we talked about it as well as how uncomfortable it is, but it is important that we have the conversation. So how do we start? Where do we start? So this is probably my next most popular question. Um, And there's two starting places you do at the same time. So the first one is aim low. (laughs) Like we get all nervous about starting these conversations because we're picking like, if I was alone in a room with Dick Cheney, like, I don't even want to be in a room alone with Dick Cheney. Like what? Right. So like, okay, well that scares me. So now I will have none of these conversations. That seems really stupid because the likelihood of me ever being alone with Dick Cheney in a room is very slim, largely due to secret service and things like this, plus my own life choices. Uh, So that's not going to happen. So I can't use this unrealistic thing 
as a reason to not do anything that would be more realistic, right? So number one, aim lower. And the lowest you can aim is your safety net. Like what group of people do you join with, socialize with, hang out with your realm of influence, like your easy speed dial people? Spoiler alert, they are usually people that have some subordinated or marginalized identity in common with you, right? So like if I were to take my lesbian brunch where there's like six white academic upper-class overly educated lesbians who exchange quinoa recipes, right? Okay, great. So that's like one of my favorite groups of people. I love these people. They're wonderful. Okay, great. So it's my quote safe space. So then in that safe space, it's a safe space. So like have a raucous conversation about something from your dominant places or your privileged places inside that safe space. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent of the conversation, but if my lesbian friends, we all sit around and just yell at straight men, which for the record is hella fun. And we have tons of stuff to talk about. That's fine. Okay, great. Then maybe after everyone shares their salads, then we can have a conversation about literacy or cis privilege or class privilege or whiteness, because why not? We're all safe in this space anyway. And then you can practice having your raucous, challenging, unanswerable, I don't even know what to do questions there. That's what they're there for. And then go do the dishes. And then go do the dishes after you've shared the salads and had the conversations. Yeah, I love that. Because I think that a lot of people don't start the conversations because they don't know how. Right. Well, and what I always hear is like, well, you, so you want me to have this conversation at the dinner table. One, is it age appropriate? I don't know. Ask the people who are older and younger than you if this is okay. Mm-hmm. But you have to respect the people older and respect the people younger than you equally and not determine if something is or isn't age appropriate without consulting them. Okay. Well, you're not willing to do that. Good to know. Okay. Well, let's just do just the dinner table during a major tradition or holiday. Why are you aiming so high? Like, this can just be over like Triscuits in the kitchen in between Zoom meetings. It doesn't have to be like where you pull out the gravy boat and actually put gravy in it. You can be like, you can normalize having hard conversations. You can do that. That is, you're, you're capable of doing that. Yeah. And I think that's key too. you know, normalizing those hard conversations that we're all, it's, it, they're uncomfortable, you know, but if we can make them normal, if we have them more often, I think is what you're saying. So we can have them just on a Monday afternoon and not having to plan for them yeah. that we're all better off. If you're trying to win. And I love to win. I mean, again, my brother is wrong. I love to win. <laughs> I am right. That is fine. But that is not a healthy conversation. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not a healthy conversation. Well, I know that we're just about out of time. Is there any other wisdom that you can lay on the listeners that you'd like to share that we haven't already covered? We've covered a lot of stuff. I think the the hardest thing for me to remember is that I already have all of the tools and resources I need. I need to do something that matters. Mm -hmm. That is so hard for me to remember and understand and practice. Um, Cause I always feel like if I get this next thing or do this next thing or earn this next thing, then what? I, I will still be terrible, awful, offend people knowingly or unknowingly and still have a ton of things I don't know. Okay, great. So then I've already started there. Why don't I just get started? 
you already have, I already have everything needed to be self-reflective and take responsibility of how I got to this moment. That is some, those are some really great words. Jess, I have really enjoyed having you on today. I hope that you come back again. Anytime. Well, good. We'll definitely make you a regular on this show. And I hope that, um, that you stay safe and that you stay well. And I want to wish you a lot of peace as well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up Podcast is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.